Welcome, everyone, to a special Baseball America podcast live from Sheffield Avenue, right outside of Wrigley Field in Chicago. I am John Manuel, along with Jim Callis and Matt Blood, just after the Under Armour All-America game at Wrigley Field here on Sunday, August 17th, and also two days after the draft signing deadline. So we have lots to talk about. And if we're going to talk about the draft and players from 2008 and also 2009, really nobody better talk about those than Matt Blood and Jim Callis. Matt, let's talk first about today's Under Armour Classic uh, All-Star Games. That's nice and fresh in our minds. Matt's on day 18 of his 19-day road trip, which is just redonkulous. We miss Matt back in the office. We haven't played wiffle ball since he left. But uh, Matt, today's game, a uh, 5-4 game, it ended up being a tight game. You had a Greek-Canadian in it. You had Michael Gibbons throwing 96 miles an hour. Had some interesting things here and there, but uh, what stood out the most for you just over the last two and a half weeks about the class of 2009 you've watched a lot of these guys how do you feel about the what's the strength let's say it this way what's the strength of the class of 2009 for the draft well on the high school side i should say yeah it's been a lot of fun as that train goes by we got the l train so you know we're in chicago (laughs) and it's pegging the meter it's been a lot of fun i know those guys uh you don't miss me that bad in the office but uh (laughs) There's, uh, this class, is, it's an interesting class. It, it has a, some, some good pitching at the top. It has some, some real quality catching, uh, very deep in the catching part. And, Today uh, was a good day for the catchers. Jonathan Walsh with two hits, Max Stassi with three hits. Max Stassi is, is one of my favorite players in this class. I, mean, I, I really think he can, he can catch and he can throw and he can hit. He's a leader. He's just a great kid out there. And, I mean, he seems like he has some natural. First, he seems like he has a natural short swing. He's not a big guy, like 5'10", 5'11", so maybe that's part of it. But he's got baseball bloodlines. Uh, he's like a fourth-generation player. His great-grandfather played with the, in the big leagues with the Yankees. Somebody, somebody has been in his ear for a while teaching him exactly, you know, the professional way to be because he, he handles himself so professionally. He gets into batting practice, and he has a pro- professional approach. He's, he's hitting the ball all over the field, not just trying to, to yank it out. I mean, he he's, he's definitely has, has had some tutelage. Well, all three of us were at the game today. Uh, Jim, I don't know if there were any impressions that the, the class of 2009 made on you, but, I mean, uh, we just got done with the 2008 draft. How, how does 2009, just when you've talked to scouting directors uh, and you're doing on your Cape Cod League top 30 prospects as well right now, it sounds like, just judging by the buzz about this high school class and also, also what's going on in the Cape, that 09 is shaping up as not quite as strong as 08, which was a solid average draft with a lot of good college hitters. 09 sounds like it's shaping up as a slightly lesser draft here 10 months out. I think you're right, John, especially on the college side. You know, Doing the Cape, Cape Codley calls, talking to scouts, talking to coaches up there, there really isn't the typical dominant pitcher or two that we've come, become accustomed to. There's not a hitter. I mean, a lot of times the best hitters, the best pitchers will be with Team USA, but I don't think there's a Pedro Alvarez I don't think there's a Buster Posey, those type of guys in next year's draft. You know, it was interesting to me today, you know, the two guys I was probably the most interested in seeing, not that they're the two best prospects necessarily, but Ian Kroll, just, you know, a kid from Illinois. Yeah. Supposed to have one of the best curveballs in, in next year's draft. You know, I don't think his curveball is necessarily as sharp as it, as it has been times this summer, but I was interested in seeing him. And then, you know, Donovan Tate actually made me feel really, really old because uh, <laughs> I, I went to the University of Georgia, and when I covered the football team there, his dad was actually playing for the University of Georgia. So I, I guess it does mean I'm getting old that Lars Tate now has a son uh, who's going to be a, a pretty high pick in next year's draft. But Absolutely. He, he was pretty impressive. I mean, six foot three, just really well put together. You can tell he's a real athlete. Got to love the L. Got to love the L here behind Murphy's. But uh, <laughs> those are, I, know, I know those aren't necessarily the two best players we saw here today, but those were kind of the two guys I was most interested in seeing. 
Well, Matt, though, Donovan Tate, let's talk about him briefly because you talked about the pitching, and I think the best thing probably about the high school class on the pitching side is if there's two premier left-handers in uh, Matt Perk and Matzik. I forget Matzik's first Tyler name. Matzik. Tyler Matzik. Uh, so you have these two left-handers who both uh, – Matzik had a one rough inning, but then he rallied with a good second inning, and Matt Perk looked pretty good today. Uh, both those guys, pretty similar stuff. But Donovan Tate seems like he's maybe separating himself a little bit as a top position player in this draft class. Is he for you, or uh, is that a little hyperbole for me? Hey, you know, you, you say separating. I, the th- thing about him is he just has all the tools. He, he can showcase them all every single time he goes out. <laughs> there goes the L again. I love uh, the L. The L just pegs the, the sound meter on the, on the iTunes. He, uh, you know, he has, he has a tremendous arm, as good as, as, good as anybody, uh, position player-wise. He runs probably the second best of, of the entire class. He plays great defense. He has power. I've seen him hit multiple home runs. And, and he has a pretty good approach to the plate. If he struggles with any type of pitch, it is a breaking ball. But, you know, most high schoolers do. So, I mean, this guy, this guy oh, oh, and he's a tremendous athlete. You know, he, he plays football above average, too. So. Yeah, and he struck out to end the game from Canadian lefty Jake Iliopoulos. So, everybody's human. Yeah. Jake Iliopoulos very excited to, to have struck out Donovan Tate today. He knew who Donovan Tate was, so... Um, but it's the Baseball America podcast along with Matt Blood and Jim Callis. I'm John Manuel. A couple pitchers from the 2008 draft, Jim, could impact the 2009 draft. Let's segue from o- from 09 back to 08 because you had a couple of uh, – it was a lot of drama on late Friday night, and we mean late Friday night. The deadline was midnight, and a couple of deals went right up to it. Eric, Hos- uh, Eric Hosmer, his deal goes past midnight as he gets an extension from the commissioner's office to sign after midnight which seems a little unusual, but uh, quite a night that night. And I guess the biggest story, first off, Jim, is the guys who didn't sign. And the fact that Aaron Crow and Garrett Cole, two first-rounders, did not sign. When's the last time we had two first-rounders who didn't sign? I don't even think we noted that. It seems like it's been a while since we didn't have two first-rounders sign. I, I think it's been years. I mean, the last I mean, first-rounder didn't sign. I guess 04, you didn't have a deadline, and Drew and Weaver were both very late signees. Right. But they both got done. I, I think the last first-round pick not to sign was Wade Townsend, which was a, just a snafu from yeah, the 04. start with the Orioles. And 02, I guess it was, you had John Mayberry Jr. Right, and in 01. And John Mayberry Jr., another instance where no, nobody thought he was ever going to sign. And then in 01, you had the whole Matt Harrington Saga. Debacle for 2000. 2000, and I think those are the three guys this decade. I, I'm not sure. You, 2001, you had Jeremy Sowers. That's right, who didn't want to sign, too. Right. But, I mean, that's it. I, I can't think. We'll have to go back and look. I think it's been a while since we've had two who didn't sign. And, you know, really two entirely different negotiations there. Garrett Cole, that one's simpler. That wasn't a Scott Boris issue. It wasn't a money issue. It wasn't a Yankees issue. Basically, on that one, the day before the deadline, Garrett Cole and his family and I think to put it kindly, everybody kind of regarded Garrett Cole as the flakiest first-round pick of all 30 of them. Yes, yeah, toughest to read on his makeup and his personality. Right, and, and Garrett Cole, you know, two days before the draft, or two days before the deadline, and his family decided uh, it didn't matter what amount of money was put on the table, he was going to UCLA. And, you know, I talked to the Yankees on deadline day, and they said, we aren't even making an offer to him. You know, we, we, they, they don't want to hear an offer. There's no negotiation. And so that one just kind of blew up out of nowhere. You know, Aaron Crow, I think on that one, you, you got to blame the team and you got to blame the agent. I, I think neither side developed enough urgency to start negotiating until it was too late. I think on one hand, you had the Washington Nationals, who, you know, from, from part of the summer, wanted to, you know, their initial offer was slot money. Yeah. And everybody kind of figured Aaron Crow was going to get a major league contract. There have been 10 pitchers in the last four years, college pitchers who got major league contracts. 
And the top couple guys get that every year. And this year, the top two guys were Brian Madison and Aaron Crow. And they did offer him a major league contract toward the end. Then on the other hand, you had the Hendricks brothers, who, who Crow, well, you know, the Hendricks brothers did have a stable of draft clients. Crow was, was far and away their the biggest gem. client. Yeah. And I think they were trying to make a statement with Aaron Crow to show we're going to get this guy a big-time contract. And, you know, the number I heard on their end, you know, uh, you know, it's just funny. You hear two different stories. You talk to Nationals, you hear one thing. Right. You talk to the other side, you hear the other. But, you know, the, the number I heard was they were asking for $9 million for most of the summer. And nobody in this draft got $9 million. Right. So, basically, I, from what I understand, I don't think the two sides seriously negotiated until the final day. And a complicating factor on top of that is if you sign a major league contract, unlike a minor league contract, you cannot void a major league contract after the fact for medical reasons. You right. have to have a physical done beforehand if you want a physical done. So, uh, you know, at the end, from what we heard, uh, you know, it came down to nationals were $3.3 million. The, the Hendricks brothers were four million. I'm not sure that would have gotten it done because I don't know if the Nationals would have waived the physical. I right. think both sides just waited way too long. In the long run, they'll both probably be okay. I do think it's easier for a pitcher to hold his value than a hitter going into a, to the next year's draft. You know, we've seen Luke Hochever went to the Fort Worth Cats. Max Scherzer went to the Fort Worth Cats. Both of them came out making more money than we thought they were going to make when and the Jared, was up. Jared Weaver held out. He didn't get more money, but he still got $4 million. He, he got the same money. So right. as long as Aaron Crow doesn't get hurt and he pitches reasonably well, because to be honest, Max Scherzer didn't light it up. Yeah, the little right. coach was was good, but he wasn't. people weren't going, oh, my God, this guy's unbelievable. Right. As long as Aaron Crow looks good, he's going to get more than 3.3. And from the national side, here we go with the L again. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll take a little break here. I love it. I love it. It's an authentic Murphy's uh, – Murphy's uh, Bleachers uh, podcast here. It's sponsored by the uh, Chicago Transit Authority there. That's right. But, uh, but you know, from the national side, you know, they will get the 10th pick in next year's draft, and they'll get a pretty good player with that pick. You know, the, the, the two things that will be interesting with that are, one, you know, they're going to have one of the first couple picks next year's draft, so the next draft will be a bit pretty expensive for them. Two, that pick is not protected. If they don't sign the 10th pick next year, there's no compensation. And really, three, well, they'll get a good player – they're not going to get the second-best college pitcher right. in next year's draft, which is what they got this year. So I don't think either side is going to come out thinking, man, the Aaron Crow thing just killed us. But they both sides are really to blame. I'm not sure what the bell is there. but uh, i got to tell you, I, th- I think it's bad for the Nationals. I think, I think they dropped the ball. I think ultimately they lose in this, and they need Aaron Crow more than Aaron Crow needs the Nationals. To be totally honest with you, the Nationals are brutal. It's uh, the worst team in Major League Baseball. It's not really close. And their farm system hasn't had a great year this year. They had they were great last year, and they added a lot of talent, but it's not playing right now. I think they needed Aaron Crow. Uh, Matt, to talk about the own aid draft a little bit for you, three players got bonuses of $6 million or more. All three of them were guys from the southeast that you wrote up in the draft. Buster Posey, $6.2 million to the Giants at five overall. Pedro Alvarez and Eric Hosmer, Hosmer I keep saying his name wrong, at two and three. Alvarez of the Pirates at $6 million and... Hosmer, the last player to sign, and also before I go on, we forgot there's a third unsigned first rounder, Josh Fields, but because he's a college senior, the deadline really didn't apply to him, so the Mariners and Josh Fields can keep on negotiating, but I believe they'll do so with all deliberate speed because the Mariners are out of it. I was going to say on Fields, I think that's just a case where going into deadline day, Scott Boris had five unsigned first round picks, including Fields. Plus Jeremy Blesh, who was the only unsigned sandwich pick. Yeah. Plus Alex Meyer, who was getting offered $2 million by the Red Sox. Running back in the house. And I think that was just a case where Scott just put Joshua Fields on the back burner. The Mariners said, look, we'd like to get this done today. But, you know, Scott Boris had 
You know, he had all these balls he was juggling in the air. I think we're going to hear on Joshua Fields, to be honest with you, probably in the next two to four weeks. I don't think it's going to go on forever. Okay. But I just think with the deadline, Scott had six other high-profile clients who had to sign that day, and Joshua Fields who didn't. So Joshua Fields was just, Joshua, just wait a couple days. It really doesn't affect we'll, you. Yeah, we'll resume with you in a couple sure. days. But, uh, but Matt, what did you think of those three guys from that you wrote up in the draft getting $6 million? Posey gets the most money. Does that mean he's the best player? How, how, what do you feel about those three guys, those three contracts? Oh, well, I, I, I think it's pretty exceptional that they all got that much money. I, it is I, exceptional. I, I, I wouldn't say that uh, Posey is the best of those players. He might be the, the first one to the major leagues of those players. Uh, Hosmer probably has the highest ceiling of those guys. I mean, he was, he was kind of hands down the, uh, the most electric bat. Uh, in, 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 in that draft. And we know he watches ESPNU because he appreciated your, uh, <laughs> yeah, your performance he sent me a, today. <laughs> yeah, he sent me a text today uh, t- t- congratulating me on, on my TV debut. And we congratulated him on his $6 million bonus. <laughs> and, yeah, and I said, congratulations on your, on your money. He said, thanks. But, uh, no, th- th- that, was a, that was a great sign for the, for the Royals. They got him and Melville. Uh, I, Melville, I thought, was the top pitcher from high school. You could have made the case coming into the year. Tim Melville was the number yeah. one high school pitcher yeah. on our board. And the, the Royals get him. I thought the Royals had an exceptional draft. They did. I love Tyler Sample. I love Mike Montgomery. I love some of the high school arms they got on the first day of the draft. And they get Eric Hosmer and Hosmer. I keep doing it. And Jim has already done the math. It's on the BaseballAmerica.com uh, draft blog. The Royals and the Red Sox both spending $10 million in this draft. And we think that's the most, that's at least the most this decade. But, uh, but we're pretty the, sure. For the Royals. Well, it, actually not true. The Cubs spent at least $10 million in the 2001 draft. And so did the Rangers. Thanks to Mark Pryor right. and Mark DeShare's well, contract. Just, just bonus money. Right. Oh, okay. Well, just bonus money. Those were both $4 million, yeah. so we don't we'll have to go back and add those yeah. up. For the Royals, though, getting those two guys, spending that much money, I mean, if you ask me, it's much better than trying to go out on the free agent market and then trying to get, you know, some, some mediocre free agent when you can go get, you know, two guys who could down the road be top-line players for, for the team. I agree. And uh, I also like the, uh, I like the idea for the Pirates. The uh, Pittsburgh Pirates had a challenging draft. They signed Pedro Alvarez right about right before the deadline. They do not sign their second-round pick, Tanner Shepherds, who I thought was a, a risk worth taking. I think basically they make up for not signing Tanner Shepherds by signing their 20th-round pick, Quentin Miller, for $900,000, Jim. I didn't think that Quentin Miller was a second-round talent, but I do give kudos to the Pirates for being aggressive. And I think the Pirates basically in the last month and a half said, we know we aren't good enough to win. We know getting to 500 is not good enough. We might have been good enough to get the 500, but that's not our goal. Our goal is to be a championship team and to have that long-term goal. They sacrificed the short-term, and they spent some money in the draft. Yeah, they definitely did. I mean, Alvarez, you know, I think by the fact that we saw Alvarez go all the way to the deadline, I I think we're seeing, you know, the the implication I take from that is the Pirates did not necessarily meet every last dollar Pedro Alvarez or Scott Boris wanted, but they still got it done. you got to give them kudos for that. They got Quentin Miller for 900000 which is mid-sandwich round money. Um, you know, more than we expected, but they got him done. I think that was a little bit of a consolation prize with Tanner Shepherds. And they also signed Robbie Grossman, Texas high school outfielder, for a million dollars. So right. essentially, from the Pirates' standpoint, I mean, they got, you know, the best hitter in the draft and two sandwich round talents. And I think with Shepherds, you know, the interesting thing with Shepherds is, you know, with the shoulder injury he came down with right before the draft, which knocked him out of the first ten picks in the draft, uh, frankly, I was surprised they took him with the second pick in the second round. I agree. But looking back, I think what they did there was a calculated strategy, actually, so they could recoup the pick if they didn't sign it and spend the money. Here, here goes the CTA again. <laughs> At least it's quick. 
I, I respect that it's very regular. It's like every five minutes. So I was going to say with Shepherds, well, I was kind of surprised for a guy who, who, as far as we could tell, and from talking to teams, some teams thought he had significant shoulder damage, and the shoulder is a lot more serious concern than an elbow injury would have been. Where, okay, you know, second round, but that was cool. I really, I really thought he was going to be a six-round pick. Somebody right. would take him in the last round on the first day, or maybe with one of the first couple of picks on the second day. But they took him in the second round. But I think, I think what they, they did, looking back, was to see if he could get back to a point where they could sign him for, for a number they felt comfortable. And because they didn't, they will now get that same pick next year. And you know what? That's not a bad gamble. I mean, Tanner Shepherds was an elite pick if he was healthy. They took a gamble. He didn't get healthy. They'll get the same pick next year. And if they had signed a healthy Tanner Shepherds, that's a lot better than what the second pick in the second round usually is going to be. And if you lose, if you pick Tanner Shepherds in the sixth round and you don't sign him, you don't get compensation for him, correct? You right. Don't. And so, they so, spent that sixth-round pick on Robbie Grossman, who was a sandwich-round talent, or an early second round. They could have taken him with that Tanner Shepherds right. pick, and they signed him. So they didn't really lose out talent-wise, and they get to the pick back next year. It's the Baseball America podcast, live from Chicago at Murphy's and uh, right near the L. So we, we, we hope you bear with the delays. It makes it a lot. We're keeping it real here at Murphy's today. And there goes the L again, a slower L on the Baseball America podcast. We'll just let it go this time. I'm John Manuel. He's Matt Blood, and he is also Jim Callis. And we're going to wrap up. Just a couple of maybe thoughts on it's early, but a couple of things about this. We're kind of wrapping up the OA draft class, and we'll have our draft report cards in the fall. All these guys are done playing. Tell you an organization that stuck out for me a little bit was the Oakland A's. Oakland spent a lot of money in this draft. They spent one point two million dollars on Friday on Brett Hunter, the right hand out of Pepperdine. They spent upwards of six hundred thousand dollars on Rashawn Dixon, a football baseball player. They got in the tenth round, getting good reports on him out of the Arizona Rookie League. I'm not so sure about Jamile Weeks in the first round. I mean, I like Jamile Weeks, and then they went and traded for a second baseman and Adrian Cardenas. Um, they've they've uh, got another second baseman. I, I forget who else they've even brought into the system. Eric Patterson. Eric Patterson. They traded for Eric Patterson as well. Well, it's a triple-A roster they're running out there in the big leagues right now with triple-A team's results in the big leagues. But uh, Oakland definitely, even the halfway through this regular season in the big leagues where they were having a good year, they decided to punt on 2008. And between the trades they made in the offseason, between signing Michelle and Noah uh, internationally for $4.25 million, the Blanton trade, the Harden trade, the draft, they've really changed the direction of their franchise. I would say that right now if I'm taking an organization that has the most talent in its farm system, it's Oakland right now. I, I think they're number one. And the number one thing they have is pitching depth. They've got Brett Anderson and Trevor Cahill on the Olympic team for Team USA. Uh, I think Oakland, Oakland's draft stands out a little bit to me. Matt, what's a club or maybe a storyline, whether it's a college that got hit hard or colleges or a team that drafted well, or that you thought maybe had a rough day, you know, the Yankees didn't sign their first and second round pick. What stood out for you in this uh, 2008 draft? Oh, well, uh, the Yan- like you said, the Yankees didn't dra- dra- didn't sign their first and second pick, but they. I did. know you love Scott Biddle too. I do love Scott Biddle. Uh, he, he and his cutter. That's but, right. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I guess they they had some 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 arm problems with him maybe, but uh, they did sign you know Garrison Lasseter late, and uh, North Carolina did take a hit on a, on a lot of players there. Rough Friday um, for the Tarzans. Uh, rough, rough, rough Friday. They weren't expecting to lose Quentin Miller and Lasseter, and hey, they and, thought they'd they lose did. Tim Melville, but they lost him. Right. Quentin Miller and yeah. Garrison Lasseter on the last day. Right. Yeah. But, but but like I was saying, I mean, I really think the Royals, you know, came out came out on top. 
in this draft. Yeah, like the Royals. And then and then UCLA, UCLA got a got a nice push there with Garrett Cole coming to school. I actually talked to Coach Savage recently, and you know he's real excited, and I think they should be. That's a oh, and Trevor Bauer too, who uh, coming to school early. Yeah, he's going to go to school early. We saw this guy at the Tournament of Stars. Uh, You know, he was excellent there. Uh, So he's got he's got two young pitchers coming in. UCLA, he's got a got something to be excited about. All I can say about UCLA is we won't be fooled again. <laughs> UCLA's going to have to win some games to get ranked high from Baseball America in 2009. That's no offense to John Savage and no offense to their players, but they were not up to being preseason number one this year, and I'm bet they'll be happy not to have the, that pressure. So, Jim, as the L rolls by, one last time on the Baseball America podcast, what's a, to you, what was the number one storyline for the 2008 draft, uh, whether it's a player or the whole class and the money that was spent? Well, on draft day, I think there are two storylines. On draft day, the, the big change we saw this year was that instead of, say, maybe five or six teams taking a bunch of the guys who were supposed to be tough signs and, and hoarding them, we saw a bunch of different teams take them. Yeah, you're right. And, and we talked about this back then. Okay, they took them. That's one thing. Are they actually going to sign them? Yeah. And they did. We saw it wasn't just the Tigers. And the Red Sox and the Yankees. You had the Royals going over slot for guys. You had the Pirates being aggressive. Pirates. And I was talking to an assistant scouting director out here at the game today, and he said he was looking at everything, and there were only four teams in the whole draft who didn't go significantly over slot for a player. It's amazing. Um, so I think that was one story. And then the second story, which we were just talking about uh, while we were inside Murphy's, uh, shielded from the L's a little bit, <laughs> is I think it shows how – out of date, the slotting system really is. Yep. I mean, the number one slot this year is supposed to be worth around four million, and the next slot is three and a half. The next one's three. The next one's about two and a half. Well, the number one bonus this year was six point two million. Then we had six point one five. Then we had six, and we had another six. And you go on song down the line, and I, well, I haven't done yeah, this Yon, yet. Yeah, Yonder Alonso get a major league contract. Yeah, four and, and a half. Four point five million. This is the seventh overall pick, and a guy who, in the second tier of really good players, he's a really good player. Yeah. Justin Smoke, eleventh pick. Again, not at that elite level of like Posey and Alvarez and like the top, Beckham, like the top players in this draft. We're in that second group, and he's getting what three and a half, million? three and a half. I mean, that's that's right now uh, off the top of my head. I think the sixth most lucrative deal in this year's draft. And that's supposed to be second. And that's supposed to be the second slot. And I think, I mean, it'll be interesting. I don't know if we'll actually do this. If you actually lined up all the top bonuses, I mean, we we remarked so many times. Not not on a, a podcast, but just talking as yeah. we were blogging. Hey, this guy just got seven twenty five. This guy just got a million. Or this guy got nine hundred. We didn't see that coming. But if you actually lined up the bonuses, you know, right now, you know, the million dollar bonuses run run out at the beginning of the sandwich round. If you lined them up, you know, that's like around the thirty fourth pick. If you lined them up, I bet there were something like thirty eight or forty players who got a million dollar bonuses. And it's just, I I think the teams are showing that even the teams think the slots are out out outdated because they're going way over slot to sign guys and. And pay what it takes for talent, and uh, you know I've said a few times, you know I've never understood why it's okay to go crazy for you know Michelle Anoa or whoever right. in the Dominican, but teams went crazy in this draft too. We do appreciate everybody being patient with us with the L. This is a lot of fun. I love recording it outdoors. We should do it more often. We'll go out by the uh, picnic table, out by the grill at the Baseball <laughs> America offices. But you know we did request a podcast room when we got in the new building, so we probably should use that. So fun podcast, and I just think a timely one. Under Armour game, the draft signing deadline. We have plenty more to talk about. We probably will talk about it again on the next podcast. The signing deadline, the Olympics are going on. What a big time of year at Baseball America and BaseballAmerica.com. So thanks for visiting. Thanks for the download. We'll see you next week on the Baseball America podcast. Until then, for Matt Blood and Jim Callis, I'm John Manuel. So long, everybody.